This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Nathan Furukawa, a CDC Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer, otherwise known as a disease detective, who's working on the COVID-19 response. We'll be discussing evidence that people who have coronavirus disease without symptoms can still spread the disease. Welcome, Dr. Furukawa. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. It's a real honor to be here and be able to talk about my work. Great. Well, let's start off with some basics. Tell us the difference um, between COVID-19 and uh, SARS-CoV-2. I know that it's still being confused a lot, especially even in the media. Yeah, I appreciate that. So um, SARS-CoV-2 refers to the actual virus itself. And so SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID-19, which is the disease that stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019. Um, So sometimes when people talk about COVID-19, they're usually talking about symptomatic disease. And so sometimes I'll tend to use the term asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection, but you could also say asymptomatic COVID. Okay. Well, let's have some more basics here. What do pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic mean? Yeah, so SARS-CoV-2 infection comes in two flavors. There's pre-symptomatic infection, and so that's someone who's been infected, but they're in their incubation period, and so they're not yet showing symptoms, but they eventually do show symptoms. And the average incubation period is about five days, but can be as long as 14 days. And so that's something different from asymptomatic infection, and that's people who are infected with the virus, but actually never develop symptoms. And so when we're talking about asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic infection, you know, that's also important to note that that's different from transmission. So infection means being infected with the virus, but transmission means that these people who aren't showing symptoms are actually spreading the virus to others. And sometimes asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic transmission can be a bit of a mouthful to say, so so sometimes I'll refer to it as silent transmission. Uh, You know, I think I've seen other reports refer to cryptic or undetected transmission, uh, but I think this might more so refer to those transmission events that are not counted in official numbers because maybe it occurs in people who don't ever develop symptoms or maybe the symptoms are so mild they never go get care, get tested, and get officially diagnosed. This study involved doing a rapid literature review. Tell us what that means. Yeah, it was indeed very rapid. So uh, the gold standard for a a review is like a systematic review, and that might come with or without a meta-analysis. And so usually those follow pretty strict PRISMA guidelines that you know, involve you developing a formalized protocol for finding papers, figuring out how to register that protocol in a registry. And then when you're reporting what you found, making sure all the elements are standardized so that if a researcher wanted to understand, all right, what was reviewed, what were the gaps, and can I be able to replicate it, they're able to do that. So we did a rapid review. And so this is something that's an abbreviated synthesis of the evidence. And it's more tailored to provide timely information for decision-making. So systematic reviews can take 
weeks, months, but rapid reviews can take place over a much shorter time period since you know, policymakers have deadlines for making decisions. And so um, in the setting of a, a really rapidly evolving outbreak, a rapid review is probably more preferable because we're always getting this new information constantly trickling out. And at some point, you've got to take that information and rapidly synthesize it uh, in order to inform a public health intervention. Uh, the risk of doing a very systematic approach is by the time you get through the whole process, some of the findings might actually be outdated based on new studies that have aroused. Um, so for, for this rapid review, it took place at the beginning of April, and me and my co-authors were actually working at all different levels of the CDC response. Um, we we're all following the literature on asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission, um, and I was on the clinical team compiling this information to update CDC's clinical management guidance. Uh, but, you know, we had just updated the, the guidance but, and had received some external feedback about a section on asymptomatic infection and transmission. And so uh, we were all discussing the different papers, which papers were stronger or weaker. And actually, while we started doing this, we got a request from the CDC incident manager to urgently generate a memo summarizing all the literature. And, you know, when I say rapid, I really mean rapid. Like, we got this request in the morning with a deadline of later that afternoon. So we really quickly scrambled. We got our writing team together, and we made, a, a, we, we made the memo deadline. And then we then generated a more detailed report, which was reflected in what was actually published by EAD recently. I have to say that that's actually incredible. I mean, just from A to Z, that you got it written that quickly, got it finalized that quickly, got it cleared, and that we got it through our publishing process, which involves peer review and um, copy editing and then uh, posting online. So good to have this. I'm so glad it worked. Thank you. It was quite a whirlwind process. <laughs> um, so what kind of epidemiologic evidence did you find? Yeah, so we kind of uh, looked at the papers and put them into three different buckets. The first bucket was epi studies. We also looked at uh, virologic studies and then uh, pulled together some mathematical modeling studies. For the epi reports, we found about 11 epi reports that described these clusters of COVID cases where the index case or primary case uh, was thought to have transmitted this infection to their contacts during the time that they weren't showing symptoms. And so um, this, uh, you know, most of the studies we saw were showing pre-symptomatic transmission, but we also found a few clusters that demonstrated asymptomatic transmission. Um, since China had experienced, you know, community transmission first, most of these studies did come from China. Typically, it was an index case who had traveled to Wuhan or another city in Hubei, which was the epicenter of the outbreak. And these index cases then traveled to other cities in China before the lockdown. And so um, most of these secondary cases tended to be household members, you know, people you'd have extensive contact with uh, over the course of if you're visiting family members in another city. Um, but we also saw reports of transmission during transient encounters, like sharing meals with other people or even uh, patients being infected in the hospital where uh, index case had visited that same ward earlier in the day. Uh, 
one of the big limitations from these studies, though, is that, you know, since it happened in China and the disease spread quite rapidly, it's, it's kind of hard to completely rule out the possibility that there was some undetected community transmission to explain this disease pattern that we were seeing. So what was really helpful is that there are two reports that we drew from, from other countries that did not have community spread at the moment, and that was Germany and Singapore. Uh, there's an early German report that described a German businessman in Munich who had a meeting with a mildly symptomatic colleague who was on a business trip from China. Uh, and then during that time period, he, after that meeting, he, he had meetings with two other co-workers who never had contact with that symptomatic Chinese businesswoman. And all three of them went on to progress in uh, become symptomatic and were diagnosed with COVID. So that really provided some pretty strong evidence of pre-symptomatic transmission. But really, probably the best paper was a paper describing seven uh, COVID clusters in Singapore. And each of these uh, clusters had an index case where they had a distinct period where they were exposed to the virus. Uh, probably through travel or contact with someone who was a known case, and then a separate distinct period where they exposed uh, their contacts when they were pre-symptomatic. And so from these clusters, there were definitely examples of household transmission, but also transmissions occurring during church services or even singing lessons. Right? Imagine if you're you know, singing at a quite loud volume that might be potentially spreading respiratory droplets pretty efficiently. So, uh, but, you know, taken together, these epi reports formed a pretty strong backbone of the evidence for asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission. And just for clarification for listeners, an index patient is the original patient that has it, that spreads it to others, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, so how is SARS-CoV-2 infection usually diagnosed now? The most common way SARS-CoV-2 is uh, diagnosed is through reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction, or RT-PCR, sometimes just PCR for short. Um, and that, that's detecting actual viral RNA from a clinical specimen. And so uh, that's commonly done on nasopharyngeal swabs or nasal swabs can also be done on you know, oral pharyngeal swabs at the back of the throat or sputum. Uh, for patients who are intubated in an ICU, you can also do tracheal aspirates or bronchial alveolar lavage. And there's some research studies demonstrating the presence of uh, SARS-CoV-2 RNA in like, other body fluids like tears, saliva, or stool, but that's primarily for research purposes and not diagnostics. But I think it's important to pause here and say, want to be really clear that just because you detect viral RNA does not mean that there's infectious virus present. And so in order to understand, okay, does this detection of viral RNA actually mean that there's infectious virus, we can do viral culture, which is actually taking a sample and trying to extract and grow virus and replicate it just to show that in fact, this is probably virus that's infectious. Uh, one of the downsides is that viral culture is really resource intensive, so it's not able to be scaled up in a way that we could use it readily for epidemiologic purposes. But 
what we could use is a cycle threshold, and that's the number of PCR cycles it takes to detect a SARS-CoV-2 virus. So, you know, if you can imagine if it's a lower number, that means fewer cycles were needed to detect virus, and so that would equal having more virus. At this moment, it's kind of unclear what cycle threshold correlates with having sufficient virus to be transmittable. You know, cycle thresholds above 40, probably not infectious. Cycle thresholds above 35, may possibly not, but it's unclear. There's not an exact number at the moment. Mm. Okay, so then backing up a little bit, um, you also looked for uh, virologic evidence. Uh, What did you find there? Yeah, so we found some evidence uh, from about six reports that we drew from. And each of these studies showed uh, asymptomatic patients who had SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, but they had virus and reported cycle thresholds that were low enough that it's possible that they were infectious. You know, two reports actually went a step further and actually took those samples and cultured live virus. And I think having the presence of live virus is pretty strong evidence of potential transmissibility. I think it's worth highlighting some reports that actually my CDC colleagues uh, worked on and re- reported. Um, and it was around the investigation of an outbreak of COVID in a nursing home in Washington State. So the investigators had noticed that there was a COVID-19 case detected at the nursing home. So they went around and tested uh, as many people as they could consent in the nursing home, and they found 48 other people who were positive. What's really interesting is that 27 or about a little over half actually didn't have symptoms at the time that they tested positive. Um, The stroke of brilliance here is that they went back uh, at a later time and they assessed who was initially asymptomatic and went on to develop symptoms and then how many people remained asymptomatic. And it looks like of those 27, 24, almost 90% did eventually go on to develop symptoms. So they're pre-symptomatically infected, whereas about three or close to 10% had remained asymptomatic. Um, Very concerningly, they ran the PCR and showed that cycle thresholds in these people who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic um, tended to be below 35 and they were actually able to culture live virus from uh, people who were pre-symptomatically infected. And seven of the 11 samples they tested, or about like uh, two-thirds, actually were positive for live virus. So, you know, it's important to note, in this evidence base of virology studies, they didn't document any specific transmission events, but just the presence of virus with the characteristics to be present and culturable um, really provided, again, some pretty strong evidence of pre-symptomatic transmission. Okay. And so apparently there was also, you mentioned, some modeling evidence. Uh, first of all, explain to us what modeling is and then talk about the evidence. <laughs> Or I have to admit, I am not a mathematical modeling expert, but you know, uh, mathematical modeling is it's a tool that's used and can be used in epidemiology to describe the spread of an infectious disease and then also be able to predict its future progression over the course of time. Um, and these models 
they rely on basic assumptions that are derived from real life or estimated, and they're inputted into this model in order to predict how this disease spreads through a population. Um, and they can be really useful to either explain what we're seeing or predict where things will go, and that can be really important for decision-making. Um, but, you know, some, some people really dislike models because uh, they're easily manipulated by the assumptions built into them. And it can be really difficult to know in the moment, like, which assumptions are valid and do my assumptions change over the course of the epidemic as it evolves? It, it's not an easy way to answer this. So all the models have some degree of uncertainty um, built into them, and they're not right all the time. And this can become a little challenging when communicating to the public because oftentimes models are, you know, uh, given too much certainty um, with the, by the public than they actually have, and that might generate mistrust if models aren't accurate. But again, models can be really helpful for helping us understand what's happened. Um, so we used two types of models for the study. Um, the first type of model was one reporting on what's called the serial interval. And this is the time between the symptom onset of the primary patient, and that's compared to the time of symptom onset in the secondary patient. So if you think about a disease that can only be transmitted by symptomatic patients, then that serial interval will always be positive because the primary case has to develop symptoms before the secondary case does. But on the other hand, if you've got a disease that's transmitted pre-symptomatically, there may be even cases where that serial interval might be zero. They develop symptoms on the same day or even negative. The primary case develops symptoms after the secondary case. So we found two studies looking at these uh, infector-infectee transmission pairs, and they both estimated the serial interval to be about four days. And so that's important because if you compare it to the mean incubation time for SARS-CoV-2 infection, it's five days. So since it's shorter, it might suggest that there are transmission events occurring before the onset of symptoms. And in one study estimated that uh, about 13% of transmission events were pre-symptomatic. So the other type of model we reviewed was this uh, a traditional epidemic model. And these studies took data from the outbreak in China and tried to fit data and assumptions in order to explain the really rapid rate of increase in cases that they experienced. And they noticed that, you know, they from their model, they detected that a majority of infections that they detected were probably attributable to, to transmission from people with mild or no symptoms. And so, you know, if you think about it, if someone's asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, maybe they're not as infectious to someone with, as someone with symptoms. But, you know, if they, um, many more people have undetected infection that's mild or asymptomatic, it might explain some really rapid spread of the disease that was seen early in the outbreak in Wuhan. So the aggregate of these three types of evidence means what? Each of these three types of evidence have their own limitations and what they're able to say. Uh, and we review that all in the article. But really, when you start piecing all of the puzzles together, I think 
paints a pretty convincing picture that supports our conclusion that asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission, it's possible, but that it's also an important driver of the ongoing pandemic. And I think you touched on this briefly at the very beginning, but uh, tell us again, why was this research done? Yeah, I had mentioned there was a, a pretty urgent ask to summarize the evidence, and this report was prepared in part to support some CDC recommendations on cloth face coverings for the public when leaving the household, and then also universal face mask use in healthcare facilities. So since we can't know who's infectious after they've been exposed, and usually COVID's not detected until someone's symptomatic, which prompts them testing, we really were looking for interventions that broke the chain of silent transmission. And so that's where this cloth face covering recommendation for the public came into effect. You know, cloth face coverings aren't perfect. I I think the jury's still out on how effective they are compared to face masks in preventing asymptomatic transmission. But if you think about it mechanistically, it, it can make sense. If you've got something covering your mouth, it can probably capture a lot of those infectious particles and reduce the spread of those particles and risk. The, the risk of transmission to others. Um, and they're pretty minimal with risk to the wearer. Um, they're probably not sufficient on their own to control the epidemic, but you know, you want to choose everything you can to enhance the efficacy of everything else we're doing to bend the curve. And again, this is just an instance where in the middle of a rapidly expanding outbreak, you might not have all the answers, but you've got to take decisive action based on the science you know and then try and implement those interventions in order to bend that curve downward. What are the public health implications of pre- and asymptomatic transmission? People still talk so much about being careful around others with symptoms. Yeah, I saw that question. There's there's a lot to say about this. Um, And when I sat back and thought about it, gosh, I think pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission has implications for just about every public health tool we have in our toolkit to fight the disease. You know, up to now, we've been relying on these broad non-pharmaceutical interventions, which I think you uh, had a guest on your prior podcast discussing them. They're these large community-based policies that are designed to disrupt the transmission of the virus, and that could be travel bans, doing physical social distancing, uh, school or workplace closures, canceling large events or staying at home or staying at home orders. And, you know, these interventions were really important for us flattening our curve, but they're quite disruptive and can have very severe economic consequences. And so as we're shifting from these broad non-pharmaceutical interventions to more targeted interventions, I think the role of pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission becomes really evident. Um, You know, one of the first interventions we rolled out was symptom screening at points of entries like airports. Um, And while it's helpful and able to intercept people who have symptomatic disease, it's not as effective when trying to capture people who have asymptomatic infection and maybe just have been exposed. And this sort of symptom screening requires a lot of public health manpower, and so might not end up being the most targeted intervention we have. Um, You know, we have isolating ill people once they're diagnosed or um, before they're diagnosed. And so this is a cornerstone 
intervention of field epidemiology. And it's important because once someone's isolated, you're preventing the transmission of the disease to other people in the community. You know, the less time that people who are infected are out moving around in the community exposing others, the fewer transmission events there will be. But, you know, again, here, if we're only focusing on isolating people who have symptoms, we might be missing that other group of people who don't have symptoms, but nonetheless might be infectious to others. So, um, and even been thinking about isolating people at home, it, there's the added complication of, you know, that might reduce the spread in the community, but that might also potentially increase the risk of household members getting infected, especially if there's asymptomatic transmission. So some countries like China and Korea have developed these fever clinics or long-term care facilities that allow people to go and stay in until they might have mild illness or no, even no symptoms at all, and they might stay in that um, setting until they clear their virus and are able to go back um, and not expose their family members. Uh, thinking about contact tracing, gosh, you know, contact tracing is when, you know, you've found someone who has been diagnosed with COVID-19 and you go back and interview all the people that they came into contact and consider testing them. And, you know, for the initial response, contact tracing was really focused on that symptomatic period for the index case. And testing was prioritized to those contacts who had symptoms, which made sense. There wasn't enough tests at the time. Um, but, you know, as we've learned more about asymptomatic infection and transmission, you know, CDC has changed its guidance to um, for contact tracing, making sure that late pre-symptomatic periods included, and also including a consideration of testing of asymptomatic contacts. But I think there's just still a lot of requests, questions that remain about uh, what's the optimal contact tracing strategy? You know, should we test all contacts regardless of whether they have symptoms or not? Or maybe we should just focus on those that are at highest risk, such as people who are symptomatic or maybe close household members. Um, another question is, you know, what's the best way to quarantine exposed contacts? You know, if we can't test everybody, um, there's a chance that, some of these people might have asymptomatic infection and be silent transmitters of the virus. Uh, it's probably not feasible to quarantine all contacts, especially, you know, if it happens in the setting of a healthcare facility where people are essential workers. So, you know, a big question I have is, you know, what's the optimum return to work? Is it having people with strict face mask wearing and monitoring for symptoms? Is that enough to lower the risk of exposing to others? So as you can see, like asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission really opens up a lot of different questions and has a lot of significant implications for the response. But nothing um, overtly solvable at this point. Yeah, unfortunately, there's still a lot we don't know about this virus. And so we're combing the literature trying to figure out what can we learn in order to implement and improve our response. Your study revealed some really important knowledge gaps, uh, critical knowledge gaps. These include the relative incidence of asymptomatic and symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection, the public health interventions that prevented asymptomatic transmission, and the question of whether asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection confers protectiveness. How can these gaps be addressed and answered. 
Yeah, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit, like, this virus is really humbling. The more we learn about it, the more questions that arise. And so to get to your first point, you know, we don't know how many transmissions are from people with asymptomatic or presymptomatic infection compared to regular symptomatic infection. You know, we've learned from a number of different experiments that, in fact, the uh, asymptomatic infection might rate might be actually pretty high. Uh, there's the natural experiments like the infections that happened on cruise ships or Navy ships. Uh, we've seen high rates of asymptomatic infection in homeless shelters, and then also um, during universal screening of pregnant women. Um, uh, but, you know, our understanding of how much transmission comes from this group of people with asymptomatic unfe- infection is still unclear. Um, we'll probably have to wait for some either surveillance data or prospective cohort data that uses uh, serial PCR testing or serology in order to get a better sense of these numbers. Uh, I'm concerned that many infections are related to asymptomatic or presymptomatic transmission. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, we just have to make sure that we're able to detect these people through enhanced contact tracing and testing. Uh, your second point was, um, you, know, have, you know, we need to know what public health interventions are most effective at reducing the infectiousness of these people who are asymptomatically or presymptomatically infected. Um, you know, we know that total lockdown was pretty effective at leveling off the epidemic curve, but, you know, we can't stay in lockdown forever, and this is likely going to be a protracted fight. So, as we're looking to open up the economy, we need to understand what are the interventions that we can keep in place in order to ensure that there's not a resurgence of infections that's driven by silent transmission events. And the third point was about immunity. So, you know, we don't know enough about immunity for, for both symptomatic and asymptomatic infection. You know, I think in an ideal world, all people with SARS-CoV-2 infection would develop complete long-lasting immunity, and we'd get to herd immunity pretty rapidly. But, you know, there's a lot of respiratory viruses out there like influenza and other coronaviruses that only convey partial immunity, and then this immunity might wane with time. Uh, And people with asymptomatic disease might develop no immunity. So really understanding whether immunity is full or partial and then durable or transient, that's going to be important for us understanding whether we're going to have some resurgence or a second wave of COVID. And it's also helpful in helping us to determine who's safe to return to work. So, yeah, again, there's a lot we don't know, but we are searching the literature and trying to understand and fill these knowledge gaps so that we can best figure out how to open the re- economy and then how to start recovering from this pandemic. Is there maybe you've already covered this, but um, I just need to go back over it a little bit. We don't really know then how very mild cases would fit into this scenario. I mean, if you're mildly sick, would you potentially have the same contagiousness as a very sick person or not? Or that's one of the things we don't know yet. Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, so we're pretty convinced about the possibility of asymptomatic transmission, but yeah, we don't know the relative infectiousness of people who are asymptomatic versus presymptomatic versus mildly symptomatic. Um, 
we do know that people who go on to develop symptoms have a peak in their viral load around the time of symptom onset. So people who have pre-symptomatic or early mild symptomatic disease might have a similar risk of transmission. Um, and that might be different from people who have asymptomatic infection. So that's people who never go on to develop disease. And they might not have the same peak in viral load that people who do go on to develop disease have. And so as a consequence, might be less infectious. But really, I think it's a comment on how little we know about this disease and the way it infects people. You know, we think like other respiratory viruses, SARS-CoV-2 is spread primarily through respiratory droplets when someone coughs, sneezes, or even talks. Um, but, you know, people without symptoms might not have a cough. They might not have a sneeze. And so not having that means that they're not necessarily propelling these respiratory droplets to other people who are their close contacts. So how is it being spread otherwise? Well, you know, we know SARS-CoV-2 has been detected in aerosols, and uh, there's some studies that can show it can survive for several hours um, on surfaces. And so we don't know if people are getting infected through those mechanisms more than uh, would be expected in a similar respiratory virus. And I think, you know, since we don't know, I think this really reinforces these broad public health messages that we have around physical distancing, hand washing, and for healthcare providers wearing respirators, especially during those aerosol generating procedures or face masks when respirators aren't available. We were talking a little bit before about uh, protectiveness and the gap and the knowledge about that. Um, I mean, if you've had the virus, uh, but Talk to us about antibodies. I hear people saying constantly that they have antibodies or they hope to get antibodies from having had it or soon there will be herd immunity because of all these antibodies. But there's actually no evidence that antibodies will be protective. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think, you know, we don't want to rush to judgment. There's still a lot that we're learning about these serology tests. And, you know, this, this is a novel coronavirus. No one has underlying immunity. Everyone's susceptible. This is a new disease. And so serology will be really helpful in understanding the spread of the disease in the population. But, you know, serology and immunity are two different things. And you're right, they oftentimes get conflated. Um, serology is a test that's measuring antibodies. But, you know, antibodies can reliably tell you if you've previously been exposed to the disease. But, having antibodies does not necessarily mean you're immune. Like, for instance, um, I work in HIV, and antibody testing is how we diagnose HIV. Because you have an antibody against HIV does not mean you are immune. Um, you know, there's some evidence that's coming through that high titers of IgG antibodies might correlate with having neutralizing antibodies, but there's still a lot of variability in these serologic tests. And so I think it's a little dangerous to infer, um, you know, positive antibody from a serology test means immunity. So this idea of using, like, serology immunity passports, I think, is a little risky because you might end up giving people false positive results and thinking that because they have antibodies, they get false reassurance and then put themselves in dangerous situations. Um, gosh, I'm thinking about that. I've heard recently in the news that... There are people who are having uh, coronavirus parties trying to potentially infect themselves 
uh, and their family members in order to get immune. Uh, I think this is a serious disease, and intentionally infecting yourselves and others is dangerous, not just to yourself, but dangerous to the people around you. And really, we don't even know if being infected conveys lasting immunity from reinfection. So yeah, it's probably obvious to say, but these are not recommended. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just cringe in horror when I hear about those those parties. Um, okay. You work at CDC. Um, what's your job and what activities have you been involved in? Yeah, so I, my training is as a physician uh, with a background in internal medicine, uh, and I'm currently in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is probably something familiar to many of your listeners, but in case it's not, uh, EIS was originally established in the 1950s by Alex Langmuir, and the goal was initially to have a force ready to protect America from biologic warfare in case that occurred during the Korean War. But since its founding, it's expanded its scope, and EIS officers have been involved in really most key events in uh, medical history, including smallpox eradication, helping discover the pathogen for Legionnaire's disease, and then describing you know, the early HIV-AIDS epidemic. And there's currently uh, 130 of us that are at CDC or in, embedded in state and local health departments around the country. And we serve as the boots-on-the-ground disease detectives during an outbreak. So normally I work in the Division of HIV-AIDS Prevention, and my research focus is on HIV prevention and PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I've been involved in a couple investigations and responses to HIV outbreaks around the U.S. Um, more recently, though, there's been a lot of uh, international outbreaks, and so uh, I was Actually, I've actually been working on the COVID-19 pandemic since January. Um, I was initially deployed to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to assist the Ministry of Health with border health screening for Ebola. But as COVID-19 evolved, I actually got pulled more into coronavirus preparedness activities and did a lot around airport screening protocols. Uh, later, uh, after I finished my deployment in Congo, I came back to the U.S., I joined the clinical team as part of the CDC COVID-19 response, and I worked on developing clinical management guidance, uh, responded to inquiries from the public and policymakers, and then was involved in a study describing hospitalized patients with COVID-19 in Georgia that was recently published in an MMWR. Uh, now... I'm working with the chief medical officer of the CDC response, and uh, our team combs through the literature to ensure that our strategies are being informed by the latest scientific discoveries. So it's it's been a real honor to be able to serve my country during this really challenging time. And EIS has been probably the most hardest, but also most fulfilling professional experience I've ever had. So I'd say if anyone is on the fence about considering applying, I would highly recommend it. I think EIS officers are considered the glamour people of CDC, externally and internally. I'm always envious that I chose a different path. But um, so what do you do? Um, what are you doing to reduce your stress in these very challenging times? Yeah, um, you know, I'm probably not the best person to 
ask for advice. Gosh, I, you know, knowing every moment counts in the early phase of a, a pandemic. Gosh, I admittedly haven't done a good job at giving myself personal space to recuperate during this pandemic. I think everyone on this response knows that this is a defining moment for us personally, for CDC, for the country. And, you know, also, I like probably a lot of my colleagues have friends and family who are frontline workers caring for patients with COVID. So, you know, I pause, I think about the experiences they're going through, and really, it, it pushes me to give this response my all. But thankfully, my wife does a pretty good job at encouraging me to step away from work every now and then. And, you know, she'll make sure I go to the walk, uh, go to go to a walk, uh, visit a park, enjoying spending some time together. And I'm really grateful to have her looking out for me. And I owe her big time for being a really absent-minded husband for this past half year. Aw. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Furukawa. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed getting to share what our paper was. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the August 2020 article, Evidence Supporting Transmission of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, while pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, online at cdc.gov slash EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.